The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com The new series on Aviation Extended, produced in collaboration with the Wings Over New Zealand podcast, is all about RAF Coastal Command in World War II. You say, look, just give me 40. 40 is what I need which is a tiny amount, really, of, you know, to give you a perspective of just um, how many, in relative terms, how few 40 is. We, the Americans, lose uh, 53 liberators. So just on one raid, we're losing more than actually Jubilee saying, listen, give me these and I can win the Battle of the Atlantic. They really were, I think, the most vital uh, long-range aircraft that Coast Command employed in the Second World read in post-war accounts of the incident that it was hopelessly undergun and it kind of annoys me because when it entered service and okay it only had two three or three machine guns but so did the frontline fighters of the RAF at that time. For the Battle of the Atlantic I didn't think there could be any equivocation about the, the importance of Coastal Command's role. Dial into the series on Aviation Extended. That's aviation-extended.co.uk or go to your podcast player and look us up. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Today, as I release this episode, it's the 15th of May, 2022. Exactly 50 years to the day, since the first flight of the very first Royal New Zealand Air Force BAC-167 Strikemaster, which was serial number NZ-6361. It took off from Preston in the UK on its first test flight. To mark the occasion of the first Strikemaster flight for the Royal New Zealand Air Force, I thought it would be good to go back and talk with the man who was involved in selecting that aircraft for Royal New Zealand Air Force service. At the time, he was squadron leader Larry Olson. 
And Larry joins me now on the show. Hi, Larry. Hi, Dave. You were an Air Force pilot. Uh, what year did you join up? I uh, joined in January 1959 and left in the middle of 1978. Okay. So um, can you take me right back to the beginning? Where were you born and uh, where did you grow up? Uh, I was born and grew up in Hamilton and I learned to fly here initially. I, uh, when I was at school, I got a student licence and went solo out here at Rukahia Airport. And uh, I worked for the, the year after leaving school, so at 17 I had a private licence okay. prior to joining the Air Force. Okay, wow. Uh, so Rukahia in those days, was it very busy? And it was a, an all-grass airfield, no provincial... Dakotas were the biggest and heaviest thing we saw. Uh, aerial top dressing with Dakotas had started in those days. But the Aero Club, um, our CFI was a well-known Ken Fennick, highly regarded um, ex-wartime pilot and flying instructor. We had, uh, at the time of my joining and uh, spending all my hours in the hangar, we had uh, four Tiger Moths, two Osters, and uh, we got our first C90 Piper Cub just before my 16th birthday. Because I couldn't afford to get a leather helmet, a, a leather jacket for the Tiger Moth, I did my training in the Piper Cub. I was one of the first. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I did all my PPL in the Tiger Moth, though, and uh, have fond memories. It was an all-grass airfield, of course, out there in those days, and... I think most of the people on the airfield all knew one another. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine. And of course, at that stage, the, um, all the old ex-wartime air, air, aircraft were all lined up there, weren't they? Yep, we spent some time over the other side of the airfield, where the control tower was in those days, um, with climbing around on the P-40s, large numbers of them, and some Venturas, as I recall, um, most of the Corsairs had been removed. Okay. Okay. Although we had one uh, on the what we called the tennis court at the, at the Aero Club, um, and that eventually was semi-restored, and uh, they, had, they had the engine running at the opening of Hamilton Airport in right. 1966. Right, and that's the one that's still at Masterton now. I'm, I, I'm not sure. I believe it could it be. Is, yeah, it is, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yep. Josephine, it was called back then, wasn't yeah, it? Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. They ran it up and down the the, the, the runway, and um, the pilot, I think his name was Frank Bish from memory. Yes, that's right. Yeah, on that day, um, said he was in charge of two thousand stifled horsepower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, were you always wanting to join the air force at that stage? Oh, very much so, yes. yes. I, I consider myself extremely lucky to have to made, the, made the grade through there. Um, had I not done it, I, I realised I was aiming myself at a commercial licence and uh, uh, probably the aerial top dressing industry was just starting to recruit pilots quite heavily in, in 1958, 59. I, I, had, I would have had to wait until I was 19 years old to get the, the the CPL. Right. However, luckily I was jet right into the Air Force uh, at the minimum age of 17 and a half. Wow. Uh, 
That's that's actually really young when you think about it to go oh, into the yeah. Air Force and start flying. Well, we didn't know how lucky we were, really. I, I've often thought that um, uh, Gavin Trithui and I, well, you, you know Gavin yeah. well, of course, yeah. um, were the first two to be taken straight out of training, destined to go into the Canberras, which were, were arriving and brand new in those days. Um, so to be a 19-year-old flying around in a Canberra is... Uh, yeah, Great, really, absolutely great, and, and, and probably spoiled us. <laughs> so, what was the the transition like going from training on Harvards into the into the Canberra? Did you do? Yeah, uh, you had to do vampires in between. I guess. Yes, we went straight straight from uh, all through Harvard training to a jet conversion of two months or so on the Vampire. Yeah. Then we went over to what, the multi-engine conversion unit, which was the, in those days at 42 Squadron, and uh, we did a, a two-month multi-engine course. Then we went back for the, for a few months and uh, flew Vampires, which would really be, uh, they were just a holding aircraft for the Canberra f fleet at that stage. We did a bit of Navy co-op, and we did some weapons, uh, rocketing only, the old World War II rocket okay. those days. Um, so when we joined the, the Canberra Conversion Unit at, in January 1961, um, I think we were the third course from memory. Okay. Then. Oh, wow. Uh, so that, that multi-engine course that you did on 42 Squadron, was that on the Devons? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's right. Okay. In, in those days, that course was very much uh, aimed at people going onto the Sunderland. <clears throat> so we, we did some really interesting stuff, like a little bit of Astro Nav, which was interesting and yeah. good to have up your sleeve. Yeah, fair, yeah, yeah. But some of the more experienced pilots who had preceded us onto the Canberra didn't do that course. We were the, we were the first two. Okay, all right. Yeah. Wow. Um, so the, the Canberra... Uh, you were based at Ahaki with a Canberra, or did you go up to Singapore as well? Uh, the, the, the B-2s in Singapore had been there for since 1958, yeah. but and, and most of the pilots graduating, or the, or the, sorry, the crews graduating, went up to Singapore on 75 Squadron B-2s. Uh, so the course that we did with the brand new B-12s in New Zealand was primarily aimed at medium level and high level bombing. There was no level role at that stage, okay. even though the aircraft was designed for it. Yeah. Um, I think some crews, one or two, went to 14 Squadron as it was building up, but our course was divided in half, and um, uh, the other crew, I was crewed with uh, Brick Lucas was my navigator, and uh, the other crew was Ross Donaldson and Ken Edwards, both Cranwell graduates. We, we went out direct to 14 Squadron. Okay. So, uh, so we were very, very junior, or I was, <laughs> at that stage in 14 Squadron. But it was an interesting period because we did our crept towards the low-level role that the aeroplane was designed, and that took a little while. We started the, the Vanguard exercises, which carried on for years. So I was on about the first five or six Vanguard exercises. It... I had three years, just over three years there, and okay. uh, left in September 1963 to go instructing. Right, okay. 
So in, instructing at PDS, was it? Well, I did, it was FTS in those days. Oh, a, a flight FTS, that's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's on the Harvards? Harvard and Devon. The Devon, oh, Devon. the Devon was being used from about a year or so before um, when I joined. It was rather funny, I wasn't destined to go under the flying instructors course, but they only had three pilots. And of course you need pairs for the, a lot of the mutual flying. So I, I was uh, interviewed by the squadron commander at about 1pm 1, 1 and um, enticed to go on this course. And by five o'clock that afternoon, I was down at Wigram and current on Harvards again. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Trevor Bland was on that course. All right. Uh, yeah. And um, that, that really occupies the rest of the year. And so it was, it was a rather last-minute sort of a move. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Instructing at that time, were there any sort of young pilots that came through you were instructing that became big names later? Uh, no, I had a, I had a, a bad luck really with my trainees. Um, I think the um, uh, one of the pilots on the the two the two year first pilots I had um, one was killed and gone each way to Vietnam. Bill Waterhouse, which is terribly unfortunate, um, is a young married chap, really nice bloke, terrific future ahead of him, yeah. and that was. A, Tragic, really, to lose him. He, he uh, died in an accident in, in Canberra oh, right. on the way over there. Um, and the other student I had um, is no longer with us, but he died of natural causes in, in helicopters. Um, I had a, a pilot on the more advanced course. He died in a Devon accident down near Queenstown, okay. um, getting caught in a blind alley. Um, I had an army student who did very well. Um, apparently, he did crash into a hangar at Waiuru, which bears his name till this day. But I wasn't around to know much about that. Um, so I was only there for a year because, once again, I was plucked out of that job at very short notice. Because up in Singapore, uh, where 14 Squadron was during confrontation, they'd had um, the accident uh, where... With the, uh, the Canberra crash that um, unfortunately um, Russell Thompson and Jim Southgate perished in. Yeah. And at the same time, the squadron commander, Jeff Wallingford, had broken his Achilles tendon oh, right. playing seven-a-side rugby. Oh, right. So they were short of pilots. So once again, it was, a, I think, a Friday afternoon at midday. We, we need to talk to you. And by, I think, the following Monday, I was on my way to Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I actually finished that um, short period with 14 Squadron about June or July of the following year. Okay. Okay. And then come back to... Uh... Well, when I got back from confrontation, um, it was a, there was a bit of a pause while somebody saw, well, what are we going to do with you? Yeah. And I, luckily, the, the OC flying... Um, at the time was Ian Gillard, and he, he, he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I'd love to go on vampires in the ground attack role. And uh, lo and behold, a day or so later, a posting came through to training flight commander at uh, 75 Squadron. Okay. And so I spent uh, a long, longish tour there, um, nearly three and a half years, I think, uh, on vampires, as, basically as the training flight commander and the squadron weapons officer. Okay. 
that, that was that was really enjoyable flying and, and great people to work to work with. It, um, you would have really gotten to know the aircraft well too, I guess. You do, yes, yes. Well, it's a, a simple little aeroplane, but a, and a lot of enjoyment and a lot of satisfaction because it, it, running like a mini operational fighter squadron, even though rather outdated. And of course, with the aerobatic team, because of the the rapid turnover of uh, senior people, I was the only instructor there for a short period. Right. Luckily, other people came along. Um, and I, so I was involved. I led the aerobatic team for a couple of years, and I flew in it for another year or so as well, which, and that's always great, great fun, yeah. very yeah. satisfying. <clears throat> Are there any memorable uh, displays that you did that stand out? Uh, probably the most mentionable ones in the Vampire would be the opening of Auckland Airport oh, wow. in January 66. Um, and uh, I still see one or two of those pilots here and there. And in the opening of Hamilton Airport just a few weeks later in 66. In, in um, I've heard from a few people about that particular Vampire uh, display where you guys come in from the crowd and scared the crap out of you. <laughs> <laughs> it was a standard opening, I suppose, in yeah, those in days. Those days yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a little bit unusual, I suppose, in those days, but of course now the, the Air Force doesn't participate to same the extent, and there's quite a few civilian teams around that are yeah. able to provide, make those sort of noises. That, that period during the um, three or so years that you are on the vampires, uh, were they starting to mutter about replacement at that stage? Or yeah, very much so, right. In fact, I thought that the, the, uh, the chief of air staff was uh, Ian Morrison did us a, a power of good when he reactivated the vampire in, in, in the day fighter ground attack role, um, preparatory to obtaining a strike roll replacement and updating. So there was a lot of lot of murmurings about that all along the way. And very and uppermost in everybody's mind was the hoping for a new aeroplane. <laughs> so so there'd actually been a period when you were just sort of level bombers and there weren't any ground attack sort of training being done? Or? There was a there was a short period like that between the end of the well the Venom was replaced of course with the, the B-2 Canberra, which was just a medium-level or high-level visual bomber. Yeah. Um, and the vampires were taken out of service during 1958, just before the arrival of the Canberras. Um, so between uh, 1958 and about 1963, when the vampires were first pulled out of storage, yes, we, we, we had a very limited low-level capability. Wow, I hadn't actually realised that. That's interesting. So the only vampires in service during that time were just the advanced trainers for jet conversion, or was it? Yeah, we had, uh, I think we had um, four solos, four Mark Fives, and a couple of T11s. And of course, seventy-five squadron had four T11s and eight Mark Fives later on. Right, right. But but the vampire up until nineteen sixty-three. I uh, really didn't do any weapons training. It, okay. the, 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 the ranges were being set up for the Canberra. So we opened Kuiper yep. uh, early on and Volkner, Volkner Range also okay. opened up at that time. Prior to that, they'd been bombing at Turakina, I think. I can remember bombing. That's it. And Raumai. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 Huh, interesting. 
So, bringing back a role to the Air Force, a strike role, that's uh, something that could happen now. <laughs> It'd be nice to see you, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's well, a bit more difficult now. Yeah. Well, it will be. It would be difficult, and you do have to to realise that the, the the cost of this thing and all the support required when you're down down in New Zealand, pretty tricky. I, I, to do it alone, I have some reservations myself. I think we'd have to combine with somebody, but there's no doubt about it that uh, the war in Ukraine is showing that with air superiority, um, without or without air superiority, you're powerless, yes, exactly. and it's taken. Some time to, to bring this to light. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hundred yeah. yeah. percent. So I guess at the end of that period is when you went back. You went to CFS and you become a yes uh, CFS instructor. Yes, yes. I, I went down to <coughs> Central Flying School. Yes. To that's right, the Central Flying School at Wigram, um, and posted down there as flight commander. Um, I replaced Robin Klitcher, who well known, of course, to go on from there. Uh, and I've been about a year in that role, and then I was uh, got a fairly reasonably accelerated promotion to COCFS in the middle of um, 1969. Right. And you probably the, the role of CFS is probably widely known as primarily training flying instructors, but we, we did a lot of other peripheral work. And and I think what it looked one of the things that we're leading up to, of course, was, was evaluation of new new equipment. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So has that always been the role for CFS when it comes to evaluating new equipment? Was it always falling fallen to CFS to do that? Um, not necessarily, no. It was it, for flying training, very much so, though. Okay. In fact, um, just prior to the Strike Master evaluation, Robin Klitscher and John Hosey ran an evaluation uh, on the air trainer and its suitability because it looked as though we, uh, it would be politically expedient if we were equipped with some air trainers. So an evaluation was needed, and I do I remember clearly that those two chaps being heavily involved in the decision and looking looking realistically at its suitability for military training. Well, they did a good job. Yes, yeah, so, that's right, definitely. So, there's, there's, there's so many ways you could look at that as, well, that's the New Zealand government looking after its own sort of business, but it was a great aircraft. Really well, was. yeah, yeah, no doubt, no reservations. I think a lot of other people used them very successfully. Yeah, but they're still in use too. A lot of the, the old 1970s ones are still in use overseas. So, um, yeah. So, um Tell me about the process of the evaluation uh, of the next jet trainer, which you became involved in. How did that first come to you? What? Well, the situation at the time when I was at CFS was that it had been de uh, declared uh, that we were we would almost certainly replace our primary training and our advanced training with the the Mackey the the MB-326, yes. which was being manufactured in Australia by CAC. Yeah. Um, I think the, they took delivery of the first 10 from Italy and then they manufactured the next 100 that were distributed between the Air Force and the Australian Navy. Right. Um, they did you have some one or two up at Williamtown doing some uh, affiliation training for the, for the Mirage. Oh, yes. In yeah. those days, the Sabre and the Mirage. Um, 
what happened was, um, as the time approached, um, BAC made an approach to to the Air Force to to present the Strike Master, and fortunately, somebody said, "Well, perhaps we should really run an evaluation on these two aircraft because." Um, Although it makes a lot of sense to buy it from your next door neighbour <laughs> rather than somewhere on the other side of the world, we, we haven't done one. Right. So um, as I was at COCFS at the time, um, they decided to put a t together a team of two. <laughs> that was um, an engineer officer, which John Mills was his name, yeah. and myself. And um, we were given some direction and then off we went, first of all, to Singapore, I just checked my logbook. I think it was in uh, July, July of 1970. Okay. And uh, up in Singapore, where they were using them as uh, pilot training, and they were going to do some uh, strike role affiliate uh, transition training on them, yeah. preparatory to getting some hunters that were coming in, being right. refurbished for them in U in UK. So I, f I did uh, four or five trips uh, flying it up there and um, no weapons because they hadn't done any weapons then. They were, they were getting ready to do their first weapons. I did um, some flights with them. I took a student on a first, on, on, a, on a dual trip and I took our, our, our engineering officer and one of the local um, senior officers flying at it, mainly trying to just get familiarising um, and do as much as I could of thinking about both roles that we were going to use an aeroplane in. Yeah. Um, subsequent to that, the Australians dismantled a Mackie, put it in a Hercules, and brought it over to a Harkia. Oh, right. Yeah, so they were very keen. <laughs> having, <laughs> having found out about the BAC intervention, now, while it was a Harkia for a few days, we uh, Stu Boys, who was CO14, flew it, John Hosey flew it and I flew it. And of course our engineers had a, a good chance to get get their hands on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it went back and then because we couldn't do any uh, weapons in it and we had some reservations about its weapons capabilities, Stu Boys and I went over to Williamtown and that was a, about a few weeks later. And we did some weapons flying in it. Um, they could only uh, do um, bombing, uh, dive bombing, level bombing, and we did some some gunnery. Uh, it wasn't, it didn't come up too well because there was no sight for the instructor. Very restricted vision from the back seat, yeah. um, and we'd had it. The gunnery was done uh, by a seven six two millimeter mini gun, and of course, it um, very hard to score it accurately because the thing's not like one where you can put a hundred rounds in fire 100 and then count the number of hits. This thing sprayed bullets out all over the place at a heck of a rate. Um, but it, we, we were quite happy. We, we realised then that the Mackie was, a, was an extremely good pilot trainer and a bit, a lot more advanced than the Strike Master was at that time. Okay. However, the deciding factor was the fatigue life, without doubt. Um, the Mackie was it's a lovely little aeroplane because I then flew it later for two years. Um, very good pilot trainer, but very expensive to operate. And it, it's fatigue life in our rugged conditions in New Zealand, using it in our well-known low-level turbulence and in and in the strike transition role. Yeah. 
it wouldn't have shaped up too well at all. In fact, the Australians were already looking at their first main plane changes and modifications wow. early on. That sounds like five years after they started production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were already starting to look at it then. That's amazing. So, so we, for us to do it, um, we'd, had, we'd have had to ship them off over to Australia, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, so we, we came out... Um, Strongly in favour of the Strike Master, it had its limitations. Of course, it's not not a good performer, um, a bit of a bucket of bolts and flying characteristics, but um, it did the job. And and I, I think to this day that it served it served the RNCF very well. Um, it it had two, two little machine guns fitted into it, and we could do rocketing, um, bombing, and uh, gunnery. In fact, we were doing air-to-air gunnery just as I left. We just started up. Um, little did I know that um, some years uh, within two or three years of that, I'd actually finish up flying the Mackie <laughs> on, on exchange with the Australian Air Force. <laughs> Delightful little um, Ferrari that it was. And then uh, that fitted me to come back and take my role, my position as uh, OC-14 squadron and introduce that that was quite fortuitous because when I came back um, the strike masters had been used just for strike transition training and, and, uh, and John Hosey had been running it and then um, his successor was Dick Laurie it hadn't really done a lot of work other than in that role uh, as I arrived we started to receive six more that uh, having had ten initially we went from 10 to 16, and we divided up into two flights, one to do pilot training and the other one to do strike transition role uh, flying. Yeah. I always uh, wonder why there's another six added on well, a couple yeah, of years later, so yes, yeah. just well, to the, expand the role. Yeah, that, that's how as it happened. Um, I don't think the initial planning really took into effect um, the dual requirement. So we actually um, spent... It was an interesting period because we had to uh, develop a syllabus, get it approved, um, get the aeroplanes in, train the instructors, and be all set to go for our first um, uh, pilot course on, to do their advanced stage on the strike, the old Blunty. Yeah. I think from memory they were ex-Harvard, that course. I think I, I could, if I had my logbook out, I could check. I remember some of the names on the early courses. But it was satisfying work, of course, because it kept everybody pretty heavily involved. And we had a great bunch, of, a good bunch of instructors. We were lucky we got great people to work with. And, and uh, very successful, I thought, for those first few courses. Um, the Strike Master as a type was fairly new at the time when you were evaluating it, wasn't it? There weren't that many Air Forces using them. No. Uh, it had been developed from the already existing Jet Provost. Yeah, well, that was, which was developed from the Priston Provost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it had been overdeveloped a little. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it but it actually, I think it proved itself as a, as a good aircraft for everyone who got it. There wasn't any sort of failures, was there? No, it was used operationally mm. in uh, Oman and... Yeah, place like that, yeah. Africa yeah. and places. Yes, yeah. It was a rugged little aeroplane. It was probably just right for us. But, of course, we all craved higher performance. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was actually slightly slower than the Vampire, wasn't it? 
Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, it was. Yes, it, it, it had a little more power, but it, it didn't get its nickname Blunty for, for no reason at all. <laughs> Very strong resemblance to the Bristol freighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, in preparing for this, I looked at papers past on online, the mm. uh, National Archives newspapers, and I found a few articles, and one of them was from March 1970, which was saying the New Zealand government or, or the RNZF was looking at getting these new fighters and, uh, uh, sorry, new trainers, jet trainers, and they were likely to be the Mackies. And then it had like a footnote at the bottom saying, and the strike master's been evaluated as well. You know, <laughs> and, and they said at that stage that, well, it was actually quoting the Air Vice Marshal Stratton, the yes, uh, chief yes. of Air Force, yeah. that we'll probably get 20 of them. And uh, I was thinking, you know, 20 to 10, that's a bit of a cutback. So yeah, obviously yeah. they... Had the treasury going. <laughs> well, I think they got the numbers pretty right, though. Mm. You know, they were heavily utilised, without doubt. We we extracted every last the last bit we could out of them. But I know I think the numbers were, were, were right at, at sixteen. Were they all in service at the same time, or was there a, an attrition airframe or a couple of attrition airframes? Uh, no, they were all in service. Right. So, yeah, That's they, they quite kept, kept going. Yes, yeah. They normally have a spare one, especially with the jets. Somewhere, yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there was. I don't. I don't know what the attrition allowance would have been in that, but it would probably zero. Yeah. <laughs> Looking back, well, over the uh, ought to be twenty. Yeah, it'd be just over twenty years, twenty-one years, I think, that they were in service. Yeah. We lost two. Yep. So that's not a bad. Oh no, no. Great when you think no. about how often they were flying. No, no. Well, it was. Well, it was rugged, and it was pretty, pretty near viceless. It did have. Uh, it the, the jet provost had a. A bit of a vice in that it yeah, it could develop into a very high rotational spin that was difficult to recover from. Yeah. So we never did any solo spinning with ours in my time anyway. We only we only trained the instructors and then supervised the, the students doing spinning training. In fact, when I flew with the Singaporean student in Singapore, um, I got him to enter a spin. He was very near close to graduation. Um, and he actually got into the, he got into the spin all right, and he made his initial recovery correctly, but he didn't didn't uh, centralise the controls as you have to as a spin stopped, and it actually entered a spin in the opposite direction, from which he then made a very rush recovery. We went into a spin in, back in the original direction, which was getting very rapid, yeah. and I took over. And I remember thinking about it at the time that it's probably what convinced me not to let students with low experience do size spinning. That yeah. um, um, that's about the only vice that I can remember the them for that the old bloody having it. It was good. There was a there was a spin test that got uh, Sean Singleton Turner, who was my last episode, and he was the um, the maintenance test pilot, and pretty experienced on them too, but it was a spin that he couldn't get out of and he had to bang out. So. Oh, is that right? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. I must admit the student that I flew with was, was not very good. He, in fact, he, but he didn't make it. They asked me They asked me to write him up and I said I didn't think it was fair on the student. Right. But they, they wanted me. I couldn't condemn, any, couldn't condemn anybody on the basis of one flight. Yeah. But I know he didn't make it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, so you don't blame the aeroplane, but it was possible. Actually, thinking about it, they might have lost, we may have lost three. There were two got banged out of them, I think. Uh, one? Roscoe Turner died in one as well. 
yeah, it's just well after my time. You see, I'm yeah, not. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not a good source of information. Yeah, no, I have yeah. to check that. Yes. Um, <clears throat> the uh, the the aircraft. Uh, one of the questions that was. Uh, a friend asked me to ask you, do, do you think that the right decision was made in the long run? Oh, definitely, yes, yes. Having having spent the two years on the Mackie, which was uh, very interesting, and the beauty of that was I, I got the benefit of uh, seeing their training system yeah. uh, right through for two years, um, came back to our training system, heavily influenced by the RAF. So I able to appraise, uh, whereas the Australians were heavily influenced by the Americans, oh. we were dominated by uh, RAF, RAF thinking, and an, and an RAF aeroplane, really, yeah, just yeah. upgraded. Yeah. So um, I was able to actually uh, have a, quite a say in how we would approach um, the, the, the syllabus. Uh, and I thought, at the time of the selection of the aeroplane, I, I got involved in, in, in the, what we were going to do. And in fact, I went on the space provisioning team to... Uh, buy all the spares and the support required because we, were, we knew we were going to do depot level su support to it right from the start. I went over to the UK in uh, January 71 for two or three months I think it was with the spares provisioning team. Um, we didn't get quite the aeroplane that we wanted because the, it had an RAF flying panel on it which was non-standard. Yep. The, the ASCC uh, flight panel was slightly different but the cost of changing, shifting a couple of pressure instruments on the panel was prohibitive. Um, we also didn't quite get the the uh, nav aid fit that I was keen to see because there was a little bit. The aeroplane we got, um, and I remember the the amplifier for the horizontal situation indicator could take um, ILS. All it needed was a marker beacon, beacon, and we had a pilot interpreted approach aid. However. Instead of that, I was talked down at air staff level uh, pretty easily. Instead of that, we got um, a VHF Homer, which gave us a left-right indicator, because we already had the TACAN was coming in, which was new. Um, and we got a shipping distress frequency selector on our ADF, which, to my mind, was totally useless. You'd never use a, a strike master for that. But this, it was a bit disappointing in a way, because I have spoken to people since many years later who have said that they still think the strike master would be an excellent trainer right now just with the right navigation aids that's all it needed so upgrading navig navigation lead uh, we nearly got there and I think we had enough anyway yeah. Yeah. Um, what, with the, the actual uh, strike training role that was to lead in the pilots who were going onto the uh, Skyhawk and I guess you had to have a bit of knowledge about that. So did you actually fly the Skyhawk? I had flown it a few times, but I never... Unfortunately, 14 Squadron had four of them when I went there, but they were shifted off for the 75 Squadron, and I was so busy with introducing the six new aeroplanes, the new instructors, the new syllabus, and making sure that that went well, that I couldn't really divert myself into doing a Skyhawk full conversion. So I didn't, much to my regret, <laughs> no time. But I guess uh, the temptation when you're looking at the aircraft would have been to look at the TA-4 and see 
the tandem seats. And you think about the Mackie and the yeah. tandem seats, and it, yeah. would, it would have been more of a, a close lead-in for that. Oh, yes, it would, it would have been... Looking back, it would have been lovely to have had something like the uh, the Hawk. Is it the Hawk? The arm yeah, version yeah, of the Hawk. Yeah. Terrific. The Mackie from the back seat was pretty bad. Um, in fact, at night, in the back seat with a student, it was not, not really pleasant at all. In fact, the flapless approach at night was a trick you learned. <laughs> <laughs> because the, the, you could, the, opti the optical illusion was terrible. We had two or three different runways, which one's the right one <laughs> for a start, and you just couldn't see ahead. But, uh, no, you did ride a tandem trainer in the trans in the strike transition role would have been superior. And something like the TA4 or the Hawk. I don't know how the, the Mackie MB339 went. Um, certainly much more advanced than the, the old 326. Yeah, and I think the front seat was lower. Lower, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. They, they fixed that problem. Yes. Well, partially and, at least. And, and having a sight... Um, in the aeroplane at the time is a great assistance, no matter what sort of um, filming you can do for an analysis. Yes. Mind you, that I think they had a simulator for the MB339. There's yeah. no simulator back in those days, and yeah. simulators, of course, have just proven themselves time and time over. Yeah, I guess also the side-by-side -side seating of the Strike Master would have been better for all the other pilots because they're going on to things like Devons and... Yeah. Freighters and Hercules and yeah. all that, which are all side by side seating. Yeah, so, yeah. I think the big picture is that was probably the better option uh, for numbers and for, for for right now. It would be right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. did right. Yeah. And I think too, um, like some of the people I've talked to over the years, they said being able to sit right next to the student and seeing exactly what they're doing yeah. is a lot better than sitting behind them and not seeing what they're doing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You're right. You're right with them and. And you, you, there's a lot of tactile information <laughs> being transferred in, uh, in the cockpit, definitely. Yes, yes. It, the, the remoteness of having a tandem is just something you can't escape. Yeah. yeah. Um, when it was selected, uh, I believe it was first announced, in, according to the newspapers, in August 1970, it was, a, it was announced that the Strike Master had been selected. I think it was the next day there was an article saying that the Australian Defence Minister was rather disappointed <laughs> with New Zealand. Yeah. Did it cause any sort of proper political furore or, or was it just a bit of sour grapes from the Aussies? Oh, I think it was just um, at that level because um, you know, it, it was cut and dried. It was, the, the, as I said, the deciding factor of fatigue life was obvious. And also um, a lot of the Aussies, both at Williamtown and at East Sale uh, and... Uh, they said right from the start, um, it's a very it, it it has its limitations. This aeroplane, nice little pilot trainer, and you've only got to look at how long they lasted and uh, compared to the Strike Master. It, maybe that the statistics tell a story. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, another thing that was in one of those newspaper articles was just before the decision was made or announced, at least. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Roland Bebot brought out a team from BAC and brought a load of films and graphs and things like that. Do you remember that? Were you part of that? No, I, it must have happened while I was away on evaluation. Oh, I, don't, wow. I don't remember him being here at all. Okay. No. It's, it's a really long article talking about all his career and the, yeah. and the war and the Battle of Britain yeah. and stuff, and it's like, oh, that'd be 
pretty cool to meet him. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. I think I did meet him briefly up at Wharton um, when I went up there on the, with the spares provisioning by. Right. But um, no, no, I don't remember him coming to New Zealand. But see, I was away a couple, a couple of occasions looking at the strike master, and it, it could have occurred. It could have occurred at that time. Yeah. But I guess yeah. it was to reverse a decision like that. Yeah, if we got it wrong, yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't be sitting here now. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the 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 strike master went on to fly until nineteen ninety three with Barrington yeah. F, and um, then it ended up getting replaced by a Mackie. When the Mackie came in, did you ever take much notice of it? The, the new Mackie, the three three nine. I had right from the start. I think. Um, I was surprised that we went that way, whereas we, I, my, my leanings were, were towards British aerospace yeah. with the Hawk. I think Hawk, that's yeah. that's a terrific aeroplane. I think everyone in the Air Force was thinking that as well. Yes, <laughs> yes, I was, I, was, I was very surprised that the, we went for a Mackie yeah. uh, at that time, particularly knowing that there's a support required for the for the Italian product. I yeah. think it, they make they make terrific flying machines, but gosh, they heavy on support requirements. As we found out, <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet, I'll bet, yes, yeah, yeah. And I was surprised that to see that they bought an engine that was, um, I don't know, I never quite understood why we built an, an engine that was brand new and un, almost untested yeah. at that time. Because uh, down here, we need things that have been through the mill in general terms. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that yeah, that really was a surprise. And yeah, although I mean, there's still. Quite a few of those aircraft are still flying in the states and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, they can't have been too bad in the long run. No, no. They, they probably, they, the sort of thing they're used for, they wouldn't do a lot of flying though, compared to what the utilisation that you would need uh, in an air force. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, so after the, um, you, you've gone to fourteen squadron and, and you were, uh, as you said. Um, Instructing, yeah. and, and uh, you were there for how, how long? Uh, I was over three. Well, actually, I was a bit lucky. I, I did the two-year tour, the standard one, for, uh, which was 1975 and 1976. And knowing at that stage that I intended to go to, to, to finish at the 20-year point, uh, which is only 18 months away, okay. I was getting terrified that I'd be posted back to Wellington or, or the South Island. Yeah. So I, I go put in my notice that I was going to take the 20-year the out option yeah. at that time, and I thought, I'm going to be moved, so I just hope it's, I'm going to have to set up now for when I, when I finish. Yeah. As it happened, I was very lucky because um, on the, it was a bit like the Mackie tour. I was the only person in the Air Force qualified with enough hours on jets to do, the, do that exchange posting okay. um, at, at that time. Yeah. And... Um, because the rest of the Air Force was all propeller-driven. <laughs> um, when, when I put my notice in, um, the, the Air Force, the posting people came back and actually said, um, you can stay where you are till you finish. I was very lucky. And they, I was pulled in at, at that stage and told, however, if you'd like to stay on in the Air Force, if you'd like to pull, withdraw your application, we'll move you over to OC-75. And that was a hell of a temptation because I really had to consider what a one two year tour on Skyhawks and in a really you know a plum job in any terms compared to the rest of my flying career. 
and, and I agonised over it and decided no, I'd better go. And as I said, I was just so lucky that fortuitously I was able to stay. And so I did another 18 months as uh, OC14 squadron. Okay. So wow. As I said, I consider myself extremely fortunate. I'd rather have had OC75, but you can't have everything. No, no that's true. <laughs> no. Wow, that's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So in, in all, that was, what, about four years that you were... Nearly three and a half years, yes, yeah. Yeah, there were quite a few pilots. I, I, I wish I could remember them all. They're great people. And I, I thought the product that, that came out of the Strike Master for the Skyhawk was, was good, very good. I think we, we've, we've, the RNZAF can be very pleased that it produced some good strike pilots at that time. And, and, and these days, most of them are Warbird pilots. So. Yeah, yeah, they are now. <laughs> yeah. they are. But I think the Australian Air Force, the, um, the RAF... Royal Navy um, picked up some pretty good, yep. pr pretty good fighter pilots. Yeah, they've all benefited that, from that. Yeah, that training, yeah. yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. Well, and the Master responsible for some of the, the quality of what they were. I think it. My impression was that we were producing then for the strike role pretty much what they wanted, and they were they were well up to the job. It wasn't much that the Blunty couldn't do, really. It wasn't good at, at for night formation. We did a couple of trips. I can remember just looking at it, and it was all right. The weather was reasonable, but it would, it would have been not too good if on a dark, gloomy, rainy night. So we didn't didn't do night formation, but we did just about everything else that they they could do. Okay, but you could take them into fairly rough grass trips. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is quite amazing for a jet, really. Yeah, well, a vampire we used to take. In the grass, yeah, we used to land it on the grass at a hark here. Well, it was good training for the guys for um, limited runway length. You know, if you operate a little aeroplane off a big airfield, yeah. they get a bit blase. Yeah. <laughs> so we frequently, on, just on the check or just when they're out doing a, a, a handling trip or something, get them to do their final landing on the grass. That's just to remind them that <laughs> unlimited, unlimited runway length is not always available. <laughs> Do you remember any sort of standout incidents or interesting exercises or anything that you did? Uh, yeah, some, some things I do stand out in uh, my time. See, I only spent nearly 10 years at Ahark here yeah. and we lost a few aeroplanes. We lost the first Canberra at, at just prior to my starting the course down, down in Christchurch. Yeah. Um, we lost another one in Singapore, of course. Um, we're, in the Vampire, we were pretty fortunate. Um, we had that really tragic accident that killed Murray Winneray. I was, I was flying in that formation. with oh, Yeah, with um, uh, Colin Rudd, the CO, was leading it. Um, I was number two. Murray was number three. Trevor Bland was number four, and he was at the back. And, um, yeah, it was a shame because Murray was such a talented young bloke, you know, with, a, with a great future. Yeah. Uh, that was that was our only um, serious accident. We had Vampire was quite an exciting little aeroplane in that um, from the moment you started the engine, you were short of fuel, <laughs> so yeah. it, re it required some pretty good decision making. And and of course, the the unreliability of the engine was just. You know, mind-boggling now yeah. that they were pulling them out every 50 years, and uh, every 50 hours, sorry, yeah. and um, and and I think they we were told early on um, 
every if you fly them for two years, you'll probably have an engine, serious engine problem. And I flew them for four years, and I had two serious engine problems, <laughs> <laughs> which is about right. No, they weren't that serious. They're just two turbine failures. But I had the, the first one uh, just north of um, Fenuapai going up to an exercise with the army from Ahakia. And um, I got back into the newly opened Auckland airports. And my first ever landing at Auckland airport was, okay. was with a... a Dead stick, <laughs> and then I had another one just um, doing it on an air-to-air Sydney trip the morning after um, Murray Winray's um, tragic accident. I had another one and, and just made it to a hark here by the skin wow. of my teeth. And, and Whoa, that and would, that... yeah. <laughs> not not good. Yeah. Two, two days in a row. Instantly. Yes, yes. Well, it was the same aeroplane that I'd flown on that uh, the day before too. Actually, I'd done it was my third trip for the day because uh, I'd done a, a live uh, weapons demonstration first thing, and then I'd done a, I think a dual trip. But I I do remember my my number two was. Um, well-known Doug Dellison, he's, he's quite quite a well-known character. And um, I put out a pawn call, and he, first of all, he, he said, I nearly jumped out myself, because I thought it, he, he thought it was him, because we, we were chasing the, 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 the flag to go off and do some air-to-air Sydney yeah. down off the coast. And then he looked across and saw the smoke coming out of my aeroplane, and he said, I breathed a great sigh of relief. That <laughs> <laughs> was you, not me. Oh, wow. Um, we mentioned the uh, crash that Murray died in. Um, yes. That was due to um, him hitting the weight two minutes, was it? Well, no, I, I, in those days, um, I'm trying to think of the, the, the current term for it. It's, um, uh, pause for a second. It's, um, we, we used to talk about downdrafts. But now, of course, oh, wind shear. Wind shear, which is a whole new topic on itself, was unknown in those days. Oh. And, of course, we had no equipment measuring it. Yeah. But the, the, the terrific wind shear over that bomb dump on a, on a strong, gusty, southeasterly day, as we had that day, was well known. And if you got it all low and slow, there was a terrific loss of speed. And I remember... Um, on my approach, as I landed, I, I wasn't rehearsed at all. I just stood in for somebody that day, um, thinking that that's a mighty downdraft, and not knowing about wind shear. And then Trev lands there, oh, three springs uh, a moment later, and I, I realised that he'd probably got caught in that downdraft, without doubt. And, of course, the, the engine was a very slow acceleration rate uh, engine with no... No acceleration control at all on the old Goblin one, and he if he was slowing down at all, and then he required power, he there was a very high possibility he just wouldn't have got it in the time required, and and, and he's not the first person to to um, buy it on that threshold. Okay. Um, somebody landing behind a, another ex Air Force um, colleague uh, who I knew well, Steve Gillingham, was on his conversion fighter conversion. Had uh, his number two got caught. They 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 said apparently in jet wash, but I suspect same runway, same circumstance, yeah. probably had wind shear as well. Yeah. So, but awareness of wind shear didn't really start to come in until oh the nineteen nineties. Right. And then we're talking about nineteen fifties and sixties. Yeah. 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 No, I, I do remember documentaries on TV when they're talking about wind shear, like yeah, they've just it. been discovered and oh uh, yeah, you know almost but. Um, yeah, you're right. It's a, 
Well, it had been there all the time, but we we didn't train for it in, in specifically. Well, and the aircraft had no instrumentation. Yeah, now that it's measuring it as well, and people are aware of it, and they've got wind shear detection around the airports. And Plus, we've got better engines now that oh, will spool up more quickly. Instant so acceleration. You can get out of it if you're in it. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, so it's, I mean, that's a close squeak for you because yeah. it could have been you if the wind had been... Yeah. Ever so slightly earlier. Yeah, yeah. He, he was he was in an invidious position in that he had to try and space, be, try and equalise the space between the leader and me. So he might have thought, "Hell, I'm getting too close." I suspect from the sound of it. Slowed down. Yeah, slowed down to just 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 increase the spacing, and then got into the jet into the wind shear, and required the power suddenly. No, I, th I think they've um, that bomb dump. Uh, embankment has been uh, tapered off, uh, I believe. Oh, so they've re-contoured yeah, it. So yes, it, yes. It's not not quite as severe as it always was. Right. But also, pilots are trained in handling wind shear, or 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 the warning signs, the indications that wind shear could exist. Yes. What do we do about it? Yeah. So it's the mitigating how to mitigate the possible effects is what it's all about now. So um, when you're at CFS, you were also leading the uh, Red Checkers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was it the Red Checkers then, or was it the it, CFS it, team? It was. They just they just, just called it the Red Checkers before I got there. Yeah. Yes, I, I'm. The team prior to that had been led by um, Tom Lambert, who was one of my instructors, yeah. pilot training, and of course Robin Clitcher, and they'd set it up really well. They'd done it, advanced it a lot. And um, I, so I inherited a team with John Hosey in it, so right. really, really experienced. And I, so I was a lucky guy that I walked into something that was almost really made. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a very satisfying once again. We had uh, some enjoyable times and we did some, some quite memorable displays. I was able to change one or two things around, but as I said, the foundations were so well laid, well laid by my predecessors, it was, I was lucky. Um, Incident-wise, I can remember a couple of things. One was um, John Hosey had a split crankcase and finishing. I can remember breathing a huge sigh of relief. We were off down to Birdlings Flat on the practice, and I sent him back with the, with the um, to Wigram, thinking he'd probably be all right, but he didn't make it. He finished up in a paddock, and I remember, as I said, breathing it. A huge sigh of relief myself when I when I saw him sitting there in amongst all the cows in this this paddock <laughs> <laughs> with a heart on his belly. So that was all right. Oh, wow. uh, now, was, I think I read about that. Were you guys in a loop or something, and he no, suddenly that, dropped out? Or no, was no, no, that oh, was another, another one. Oh, that's another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We had a we had a couple of funny incidents. Um, he did we did something we he wouldn't get away with. Now we took off out of Tauranga. And we just discovered that if we started the smoke, we thought, oh no, somebody suggested, how about we take turn the smoke on during the takeoff? That'll draw attention to our departure. <laughs> well, it did. We achieved success way beyond our expectations because after the takeoff, which was on the grass at Tarong, I looked back. I heard, first thing I heard was Air New Zealand saying they were going round again on their, on their friendship. And then, then a lot of voices said, we can't see anything and, we, and we're stopping. And the control tower said, all aircraft at Tauranga Airport, hold your prison position. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, 
I looked over my shoulder. It was like looking at a, a mini atomic uh, mushroom <laughs> <laughs> because the smoke had piled up and wiped out the whole airfield. Oh, wow. luckily, the, luckily, the controller eventually said, well, you, you've got to laugh. And I, I've often thought, well, you just... Nothing was nothing was ever said about it. Very fortunately, that's <laughs> the last time you did that. Though. And we, we, whenever we did it, then we made sure that nobody else was airborne or any problem. <laughs> so I learned, I learned from that. I, I learned from the other incident you alluded to earlier was um, uh, when the number four we were pulling up to do an upward bomb burst, and but I, we were actually in a civil training area um, because Birdling Flat was fogged in. Yeah. An aircraft from Canterbury Aero Club was coming towards us, and he, we'd seen him way down the other end in the distance, yeah. and expected he'd stay there because I think it was the, the CFI practicing his routine for the coming air show. Yeah. Anyway, this aircraft appeared suddenly at my twelve o'clock as I was pulling up, and I took off a little bit of the loading, and then realised we're going to pass below it. <laughs> and called the brake as I normally did, but the number four had ridden up a little bit further than normal as his wingtip went through my tail, my tail plane and then off the bottom of John Hosey's aeroplane. And, and we finished up. I've got some photographs I can show you in there of, uh, with three damaged aeroplane <laughs> and, and a bruised reputation. <laughs> and, and uh, of course, I naturally have to carry the can for that because I, I authorised it, I briefed it, I was leading it, um, and so... It was a good salutary bit of a lesson in uh, responsibility. But we all got back to Wigram. Was it all right? With, albeit with some cross-control flying yeah. <laughs> required. <laughs> was that the one that was just before... You were doing a practice before doing something in front of the Queen? Yes. That, yeah. I think it was, a, it was very close to that time. I, yeah. I think we were going to Whanganui for the annual pageant. Yeah. And then we went down to... Marlborough Sounds. Mm. Unfortunately, the one for the Queen, we got really windy, gusty, turbulent conditions. Not quite bad enough to turn it off, but bad enough to make it difficult, which was a pity because um, it was a, that was a great uh, venue yeah. to, to have done one. Yeah, yeah we, we got we got it done. <laughs> <laughs> Probably still look good from her point of view too. Yeah, apparently the, one or two people from the ground said it was great because the old Harvard was always well received. And of course it was good because you, compared to a, a jet team where you need about 4,000 feet really of cloud base, you, you can do it with the whole, the whole show under a 2,000 foot cloud base. The aeroplanes stay nice and close. They make a lot of noise. Yeah. They've got, they got a lot of presence. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And they're still popular now, the Warbirds team yeah, is still going yeah, yeah. through it's the a, same routine, basically. Yeah, it's good to see. Yeah. It's good. Um, with uh, with the, the jet team, did you prefer leading the jet team or, or the Harvard team? Which would... Oh, they're both so good. I've, I, I think I enjoyed all of them so much. Um, and I, I flew as, as number... To, I flew in all positions, solo, number four, in the vampire. So I, got, I really got to really enjoy it, the yeah. satisfaction of it. In the Harvard, I mainly led. I did one or two. I think I did one show on the wing, and uh, I did a couple of solo shows. That's about all. Mostly leader. And, of course, as leader, 
you, you're a bit frustrated now and again because you'd rather have a go down the back. Did you do any display flying in the Strike Master when you were on the squadron? No, in, in those days, it very there was a, a, a clear direction from above. There will be no display flying. Oh, because of the oil crisis. Oh, yeah, all that, that, that. Those years, there was none at all. No, I did do uh, two or three solo displays in the Mackie in Australia, and that was just superb for sulphur. Oh, yeah, it's typical of Italian little sports car. Absolutely lovely, delightful machine. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I've never even seen a film of one of those being displayed. I'd love to actually. It's oh, actually, the, the, the test pilot used to do, I mean, he came to a sticky end, but he did some spectacular displays in it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you um, were doing the evaluation on those two aircraft, did you talk to test pilots for, or yep. people like... Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the uh, Australian sent out, um, we flew with uh, a test pilot, from Mackie, and uh, they, they had flown the Mackie quite a bit. We flew all of their senior people in there, and um, British Aerospace sent a, a test pilot from from uh, British British Aircraft Corporation, they were yes. called then, from uh, Wharton came down, right. and he he was a sort of number two man in that team because he was heavily involved in the weapons system for the Jaguar that was being developed at that time. Right. But he also did some, did some demonstrations and quite a bit of test flying in the Strike Master. Okay. Right. When our uh, Strike Masters came into service, were there, was there much difference between those and the ones that you had flown in Singapore? Um, not a, not a lot. Um, we had put TACAN in and a horizontal situation indicator because with the old the, the, this instrumentation of the basic RAF one was um, 1950s. It's probably the same as it's Piston Promise, yeah. for all I know. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't a great deal of difference. And the, the, uh, the, the weapons fit with the underwing stores and the, and the guns were just basic standard. But the RAF never ever took Strike Masters themselves. Right. Right. Not to my knowledge. No, they didn't. Actually, I, I did talk to some of the RAF chaps at time, a couple of times, who had flown them out in Oman and had flown them on operational sorties, supporting ground troops. And they, they were ex-hunter pilots, they were, that I knew from Singapore days. And they, were, they spoke highly of it. They were quite happy to go anywhere in a strike master, which surprised me. I said, wouldn't you, wouldn't you be happier in a hunter? And they said, no, not necessarily. The strike master did a great job, and I was quite happy there, yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so when you left the Air Force, you went on to the airline. So can you give us a sort of brief overview of your airline career, just to finish yeah, it off? Yes. Um, well, being 37, uh, when I left, um, I'd suddenly become too old for, for Air New Zealand because about two months before that, amalgamated with NAC, who'd said, well, we're dropping the recruiting age from 40-something to 30. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I knew it would be hard going, and I'd probably have to go offshore. So I flew briefly in general aviation um, in, over at, with Cooks on the air spread at Wairo as a charter pilot. And then I flew flying, at, flying what, sorry. Uh, there was an Aztec, the X-Forest Products Aztec, and, and a Cherokee 6 and a Cessna 185. I did um, paper, newspaper deliveries around from between Gisborne and 
Napier area in the early mo first thing in the morning, the, mainly the Herald, and took all the newspapers. And then in the evening, I did the data. In those days, it was bank run with the data tapes, and I did that. That was once again around the same circuit in the Aztec. And we had a night VFR dispensation to get back up to Wairau because it had no navigation aids. Um, wow. And then I got a job with Nationwide Air on the Carve Air. Oh, yeah. Got, oh, yeah. I flew that as a captain. Uh, I, did, I did a few couple of weeks, two or three weeks as a first officer and then got a command. And that was that was very quite interesting because I'd never flown a, a four-engine aeroplane, a big one like that. So by day, we carried six cars across at the time across the straits and at night we did freight night freight between Auckland and Christchurch wow. okay. that, then I had my first experience of a company going broke while I was working for it yeah. and it went broke twice um, so I was jobless again because I'd been jobless when I left the Air Force and um, I managed to get a job as a, the first domestic simulator instructor with Air New Zealand because they had a brand new friendship simulator. And while I was there, I did a lot of uh, just GA instructing to keep myself current. And um, Brunei was recruiting and I applied and got a letter back from the ops manager who was an ex-RAF Cranwell guy and said, we don't have much luck with the ex-Air Force guys, so I'm sorry, you're out. And you haven't got what we've got. And then I got another letter from him a few weeks later saying we've changed our mind. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, they couldn't get any recruits. So I was in. And, and I, I actually went on the, the 737. All The airline up there had only been going five years, so I went there as the first officer uh, after doing an initial conversion here in New Zealand. Um, and about six months later, I was a captain. And a year later, I was the chief pilot. And a year after that, I was the flight operations manager. So I joined on the right day. Yeah. And we went from two 737s, we got a third freighter, and then we we got out three 757s, which were big deal, very interesting. Um, and we started training local pilots, because that had to happen. Um, very interesting time in Brunei, because it went from a British protectorate to fully independent with massive changes in um, attitudes and material things. Um, and I decided that uh, with the family I had, I had to either come home, stay there, which was, and become a, a, a lifetime expatriate, yeah. which is tempting because it was a good, good income, or come back and chance my luck. So I came back. In uh, 1989, I came back and, and um, hoping for a job on the DC-8 with Southern World Airlines, okay. which was a bit too slow to go. So I, luckily, again, uh, Air Freight was starting with uh, the Convair 580s. And they couldn't get an AOC sorted out because they didn't have anybody, any pilot in the uh, sort of... Uh, in their management side that had heavy aircraft experience and management experience. So they, I was approached a couple of times and saying, well, if you join us, you'll solve that problem. And eventually I thought, well, it's better than being unemployed. So, yeah. so off I went down to Palmerston North, introducing a new aeroplane. And, and that had a lot of potential. It was a good, 
good aircraft, a good a good decision to go for the Convair 580 yeah. at that time. So I was back at a night freight again. Okay. I had to stay there for a long time. And of course, we, I, got, I went to Canada on the pickup of the aeroplane that crashed in Auckland Harbour. Um, and that was, a, that was a shame because, of course, we lost three pilots just like that. And uh, I think we can put that down to um, commercial pressure. Once again, the whole incident, looking back on it, um, is a tragedy. But we kept going with one aeroplane. And then I had done a short period of line training for the start-up of ANSET New Zealand on this, with their 737s. So I uh, received an offer from them to go over as a 767 captain okay. after the pilot strike. And I had a bit of agonising over that, but I had never really been treated very well by the by the, by the pilots' union. So I thought, well, you've had your go. It's time I had one. So I went over there, and that that was great. That was absolutely excellent. Most enjoyable period. I, I did um, mostly. Uh, I did some quite a lot of line training, and uh, I was a check captain on the 747 while we, we did the when they got went international. I spent three months in Vietnam on secondment. Um, previously, I'd done some secondment work with Fiji in Fiji as well. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. Then I oh, then of course, ANSET went broke oh, <laughs> after 12 years. So yeah. there I was broke. Only this time, I was 60 years old. <laughs> so I, I, I had is my. Is my wife now, but I had a few uh, a few months, nearly a year, I think, without work. And once again, um, in New Zealand, we're looking for simulator instructors oh, in Auckland. Yeah, yeah. So I did some instructing on the 737 because I hadn't flown a 737 for quite a while. Yeah. Um, and I was rather unhappy that I was being utilised for work that I wasn't really authorised for. So Tongan, Royal Tonga needed a chief pilot for their 757 operation. So I said, right, I'll go. And when I got there, I had a look at their operation and realised I'd made yet another mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I didn't, didn't stay there very long. And as soon as um, Jet Connect with the Qantas 737s uh, had a vacancy, I joined them as a first officer again. And now I was 62. <laughs> and I spent about six months flying, which was quite good, actually. Everybody should do it. Go back and be a first officer. You, it, not, I don't think it does anybody any harm. And then I got a command there, and um, I finished up as a check captain. And we, we went from 737-300s. They were the really worn-out XNSET 300s. We got some 400s from uh, Qantas, they were pretty well worn too. And then we got some brand new 737 800s. So I think I was about 68 or 69 when I did my conversion. Wow. Yeah. So when I did my 747 conversion, I was 54. So I was lucky later life. I, I made a lot of mistakes, but I've been lucky at the same time. Um, so it was a good way to finish in a way at, at age 70, um, mainly because of that time I spent some time at home yeah. and give somebody else a go. I was filling a job, much as I loved it, I had to reluctantly give it away at age 70. Yeah. Went on flying the Yak for a year or two and, and, and a chipmunk that was based here for a while. And um, sadly, uh, medical didn't, didn't uh, 
hold up as well as it should have. <laughs> That's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you really miss the flying. Oh, well, you, you do. It's a big hole in your life. It's a bit like retirement for anybody. It, um, what we should all do is start developing, absorbing interests or hobbies or whatever you want to call them earlier on. But like a lot of things we do, we leave it until they're necessary and then it's too late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you keep in touch with um, aviation groups and uh, you know, yeah. reunions, things like that? Well, yes, we've been to a couple of reunions and which have been really enjoyable. I belong to the local aeronautical society branch yeah. and, and the Taronga one, which is very successful and well supported. I, um, I've been in touch with the Canberra supporter group. Gavin and I, of course, he's, he's heading that up largely. In fact, I'm just hearing from him at the moment. Um, I'd like to go up and see what they do with that, um, with that, that restoration up there. Yeah, it's an amazing job. Isn't it? yeah, yeah. It's a bit difficult. Oh, you probably find the same around in this district with aviation because we're not at the, the heart of the industry, are we, really? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I think out at Hamilton there, they're struggling a little. I think so. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so yeah. Not like the old days of Hamilton. No, no, no. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of places I'd rather be living for the aviation side, but then, yeah. but then I do love living in Cambridge oh, as well. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, we, were, we are lucky. Yeah. Actually, I'll be interested to hear how this Vickers Aviation wave goes. I see mm. they're flying it now. Yeah. I went out with the society and we had a look through it. Terrific. They've got some great people and some good innovators in there and you, 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 you wish them so much success Absolutely. You know, for all that dedication out there. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's that, that's um, one thing about Hamilton is it's always been sort of the place where a lot of innovation has started and, yeah, yeah. and, and the industry, there's been one industry after the, after the next and yeah. they don't always... You know, uh, they're not always a success, but they're but they're interesting, and they yeah. You know, they they're keeping our our aviation hub alive at, at Hamilton, I guess. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it's the old story though. They're up against you know, it's a bit like this Pacific Aerospace selling what they're selling now. Uh, this is Hamilton versus Wichita, yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. guess who's going to win? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, but no. Good luck to them. Good luck. Mm. Definitely. Definitely. Well, you certainly had an amazing um, air force career and and an airline career by the sound of it. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a great career to look back on. Oh yeah, I've got a lot to be thankful for, and uh, met some great people too in, in the industry. There's no doubt about yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's no no people like air, uh, aircraft people, aviation. No, people. no, it's in their blood, isn't it? Good. <laughs> You've only got to watch these volunteers. You watch what some of the blokes have produced um, in uh, aircraft restoration, and the volunteers that work in the hangars and so on. Uh, yeah, they, they can't keep away from it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, I was also thinking, you know, the the main purpose for this when we initially set this up was just to record that whole evaluation period and and selection of the strike master. And I was thinking. When you look at the jets, we probably never had an evaluation for the vampire because we would have just mm. had, there's the vampire, there's nothing else. Yeah. Um, it's British, you have to buy it sort of thing. Oh, yeah. And I guess with the Canberra too, that was sort of, we leased some first and 
And then yeah. they would have gone, well, we'll buy yeah. those. I think that was a strategic decision. And at the time I said, why didn't we get a, yeah, a whole bunch of hunters? Because I was mad keen to get on. To get I, did, yeah. did, I did quite a bit of flying with 20 Squadron on the Hunter. I spent a couple of weeks with them. Right. Really enjoyable. Did some rocketing and what have you. Oh, wow. And I lo- there's a lovely aeroplane to fly. But, but uh, looking back, I can see that the New Zealand government, we belonged to CETO in those days. Yeah. And forward defence um, was a, the big thing. You know, we, we weren't going to fight here. We were going to do it somewhere else. Yeah. So we had to have an aeroplane that could deploy with not, from way down here with not a lot of support, yeah. um, some credibility, of course. And, the, and Canberra was one of few available. You, you couldn't equip yourself with an aeroplane down here that didn't need huge support that we didn't have that could deploy anywhere in our region and, and play, play your role or take your part in, in our treaty organisations at the time. Yeah. So I, I, much as I personally thought, oh, damn it, yeah. <laughs> um, it I, I think probably was right. Yeah, and also the interoperability too, because the ARF were using them, yep. the RAAF were using them, yep. Yeah. You know, a lot of other nations. They're still they're still in service now in yeah. some of the some of the um, oh, yeah. air forces. Oh, Even yeah. the I think the uh, NATO uh, NASA still uses them. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah for high altitude work. Yeah, yeah. well, a tremendous capability for its time. You know, yeah. as I said, as a nineteen year old, we flying around at up to forty eight thousand feet, and we'd punch off to Fiji on our own, just the two of you, the, a screwdriver and some starter cartridges. And a voucher to buy some fuel. <laughs> so I think my first ever trip out of New Zealand at that age was to go over to Australia and back on my own in Canberra with with, uh, with my navigator. That's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now my navigator at those eras, I was very lucky. I don't know if you know much about Brick Lucas. He's, no. No, he um, he was a nav, and he then became a pilot, but. Um, he uh, he was actually killed at Erebus, and, oh. and he um, somebody in the seventy five squadron association has been looking into his background lately. He became a pilot. He was our best man at our wedding. He became a lifelong friend. Had he had he lasted. He um, I also did a lot of his flying instruction on the Vampire before he went on, and he was very highly regarded because he was such a professional. And he was called in that day at a reserve to go on TE. 901 was it down yeah, there and he wasn't particularly happy but he he, he he was in the passenger cabin rather than on the flight deck with all the non-aviation you know, the, the, the scenic side and, and Ron Chivendale I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that he actually was commented either verbally or otherwise that had he been on the flight deck the accident may not have happened yeah. because he was such a professional right. and there were indications there that a they shouldn't have been where they were and that they weren't where they thought they were yeah. and he so he was that highly regarded wow, that's so I was lucky actually to have him as nav for all that time right from the start, start through and and as a friend that made a life yeah. 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 No, that's sad. Mm. so you had a, a wheels up landing in the um, in the uh, um, Mackie. Yes, um, I was a flight commander over there. There, there were forty Mackies on the line uh, at the time at, at uh, Pierce Air Force Base, and um, I was off doing the early morning uh, weather recce. Uh, in the back seat, I had a Navy instructor, 
in my flight, and he's under the under the hood, as you can see here, yep. to do a bit of instrument flying yep. when, we, when we got the opportunity. Um, one of the first things we had to do was uh, just do a quick uh, circuit. You, as you can see, the cloud base was reasonably low, but just to determine whether it was suitable for uh, student circuit training. Anyway, on that first uh, approach, couldn't get uh, a safe indication on the left main gear. So we um, tried pumping it down, tried all the alternate re uh, procedures and couldn't get, couldn't get it to go uh, safe at all. And uh, so I said, well, we'll, uh, we'll just make one approach. And I'll, I said to the bloke in the back, we'll just keep uh, a bit of power on and just see what happens with that left leg because I might... might I wouldn't like it to collapse because it would take us off the side of the runway. Yeah. Um, and it did collapse as soon as we touched down. Right. And, uh, so we rinsed it into the air and um, pulled the gear up and uh, set up for a pre-planned pre uh, wheels-up landing. And in those days, as you can probably see from the photographs, they, they foamed the runway. Yep. Uh, these days, I think you probably wouldn't. You'd, you know, having the foam in the fire tent is far, far better than having it spread out on a yeah, runway. True, yeah. But the, the damage to the aeroplane was absolutely minimal. In fact, it just just took, we managed to stay in the foam path right through. Yeah. And um, it took off all of the aerials. The aerials on the underside ground a little bit off the inboard side of the flaps, but um, they had a little bit of skin damage on the bottom. And they had the thing flying again in about three or four weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, oh, wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. Well, it was just absolute minimum. They yeah. uh, surprised themselves. But yeah. I, I think a, a pre-planned wheels-up landing is not uh, not ever going to do too much damage to the aeroplane in most circumstances. Yeah. Anyway. Is that the only one that you had? Uh, over there, yeah. As I said, um, we didn't have... That was the only... We didn't have any other real serious incidents with the Mackie while I was there because they were they were reducing their training quite dramatically post Vietnam, and yep. they they actually uh, almost cancelled one or two courses, but they got the numbers right down. So our flying rate dropped off quite a lot. Prior to that time, they had had quite a few incidents with the Mackie. They had one when Stu Boys and I were doing the weapons evaluation at Williamtown. The canopy came open on one up at uh, the satellite airport at Gingin, and unfortunately it decapitated, decapitated both the pilots, the instructor and the trainee. So it was a known weakness of the, the Mackie that the canopy, if it came unlocked, it was um, not survivable. Yeah. Uh, they had one, they had a fire not long after that on one on the downward leg at uh, East Sale with and its. Um, an instructor and a trainee instructor, and they ejected on the downward leg at low level. They're okay. They they had their their attrition rates reasonably high. I know they lost one at Saltash Range, okay. um, not long after I left. Yep. So, uh, but higher than the Strike Master, I would say. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, interesting. It's funny. I ran. When when I was um, flying around Australia as a, I think I was still on the seven six seven at the time. I pulled through Sydney one day and a bloke tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Hey, we haven't uh, managed to do do any damage to an aeroplane in recent years." And it was this Navy pilot. He's, he's a captain on uh, I think seven three sevens over and yeah, 
he'd been in Gulf Air flying the TriStar and he'd taken a job back in Australia. Wow, interesting. Brilliant. Actually, the Navy trained, brought their entrance in a lot younger than the Air Force. So the Navy attrition rate was pretty high. Okay. Um, I had one of the a brilliant student there, was typical, absolutely superb bloke. For, he, he was just his capabilities were mind boggling. I used to think I could not do what he did anywhere near it at, at that stage of my career. Yeah. And he, he went to fly trackers. And uh, within a year, he was gone. Once again, motorbike accident, as happened so often with some of the... They, they took them in at about 16 and a half or 17, something like that, whereas the Australian Air Force went for just that two or three years older yeah. and, and a bit more maturity. maturity yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I was just thinking that the F-105 ride was spectacular, didn't it? F-105? Yeah. What was that? That was in at, at Williamtown. Uh, I'll get the date. Um, yeah, now the old F one hundred five that the pilots loved, of course. These are all Mackie photographs. That's the mess. That, they used to use the T eleven, of course. But yep, yep. That's, um, we, we did some, I've got a, one over at our beach place. It's, I'm trying to find for you. Yeah, this is John Hosey, Graham Goldsmith, yep. John Lennon, yep. and that's Doug Lloyd. Graham Lloyd was in the previous team. Okay. Yeah. They both were there. It's 60, oh. 65 still going strong. Is it? Yep. Is it? Yep. Oh, here's, Admiral. The, yeah, here's, here's the damaged. Oh, yes. The airplanes. I'm just trying to think. Oh. I thought I had a coloured one of that somewhere. I think I had. Yeah, that's it. That's. Oh, that's 65 there. Yeah. Interesting, it? yeah. What, that's, that's the wingtip of six. That's that John Hosey was flying 60. No, no, Doug Lloyd flew 65. That's his wingtip that, and as he went across the bottom of John Hosey's. Wow. And that's my rudder and elevators. Gosh. You're lucky he didn't get any closer than yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> are you trying to get that, are you? I know the owner of 65. Do you? Uh, Brett oh. Nichols, he's... Oh, yeah. He's got that up in there. He's got this one here. I'll get this one. I've got a big one of that, this big. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> in my office. Yep. It's about that big. So which one did you fly regularly? Um, 87, 87. For leading. For yep. leading, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm trying to find what the date was for the... Um, Oh, this is Murray Winrose accident. All right. Uh, no, that's the that's the engine. Is that, is that firing rockets? Is yeah, that's right. firing the old the old um, three inch rockets. Yeah. Not the not the not the, the, the two inch. Hamilton Airport opening. There we are. Oh yeah. Colin Rudd and I. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Oh, here we are. When's this? I think it must be, that'll be 1965. We went up to Korat uh, when I was in confrontation and talked to, and had a few 
large number of beers with the F01, F105 pilots who used to go down from Kadena and Okinawa. They'd go down to Korat, do a tour bombing around the north of Vietnam, then they'd go back. So they supported it from Kadena. And they're interesting guys to talk to because they were, the world, this is 1965. Yeah. Nobody knew they were doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, in 19... Six, no, that was in 1964, actually, late 64. Okay. This was about mid-65, because I'd come back, and we were based on the Vampire at Ahakia. Yeah. And um, we went over to an exercise called Pacific Concord, the very first one. And so uh, Brian Stanley hadn't got a ride, and I got a ride okay. by going down to Williamtown. Oh, right. And he, I'm not sure who he is on his, but the guy that, that, that was in the formation... It's quite well known on YouTube, and it's Vic Viscara, okay. and his son Viscara is also a USAF pilot. If you if you if you Google Vic, go to YouTube and look yeah. for Vic Viscara, an interesting bloke, Mexican. I remember one of the pilots when we were going saying the phone went. They said, "In the American pilots to take the phone," and one of the other pilots said, "Viscara started heading across." I said, "They said American." <laughs> Not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but this, this sortie we went on, they wanted a supersonic attack on Williamtown, so um, they took all the tanks off the off the aeroplanes. Mm-hmm. And my pilot, I think it was Jimmy, a lieutenant or major Jimmy Brown, I said, I've never thrown one of these things with a slick wing ever. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, and so they said we went out to sea. We took off, went out the three of us. And then we split up and we went to different heights and different speeds to do the supersonic attack. And then they scrambled the Mirages to do a practice missile with the Matra missile yeah. intercept. And uh, they said on the ground, it was amazing. You'd hear all these sonic booms, boom, boom, as we approached into wind. And Viscara had, I think he had a thousand knots on his Doppler and he just held that no matter what height he was at. And we we were doing about Mark 1.6 at one stage, wow. and we went through the overhead. I was flying it at the time. We went very high. We were at about well over, well over 50,000 feet because at low level they had an 800 knot speed limit. That's why okay. the pilots love them. Yeah. They're so fast. Yeah. Um, but as we he said, I remember him saying to me, um, "Don't take the power off. Just use the speed brake because." not recommending it. He was just sort of reading the pilot's notes almost. <laughs> and so we went around the top of Williamtown, slowing down by this time, but we were still doing Mark 1.4 or 1.5, and the Mirage went past us on the, on the inside, so I don't know what speed he was doing. Wow. <laughs> but we were, only, we were only airborne for about 28 minutes, I think, from memory, and um, we were desperate for fuel. <laughs> and he, he said, I've got to get this right. No-go round from this one. Wow. So it could have been full afterburner, flat out the whole time. So it was a spectacular ride, really. Yeah, it sounds like And a huge, if you're flying a thing like this and you get into an F-105, it's it's probably heavier than a Canberra. It's a huge aeroplane. No, that was was good. There wouldn't be many Kiwis who could say they're flying one of those. No, no, not really. No, Brian Stanley, very few. One of the books I read, an RAF guy wrote, uh, I probably got it on Kindle at the time a few years ago. He did an exchange on them, oh, right. and I thought that's interesting because it was designed as a low-level nuclear bomber, yeah. to, and that's all it was supposed to do. Yeah. But to, I think it was him or somebody else said the speed of the damn. Oh, it was an F4 guy. He'd done a tour on 105s, and he was on F4s, 
and he was, he was in, I think he was doing, I've got a feeling he was armed with um, you know, the, the harm anti-radiation missile, yeah. and uh, he was in a, a formation of four, and they were doing about 540 knots or something like that, and he said, an F-105 went past us. <laughs> I, I was standing still. <laughs> Some of the, well, she went, the, the, the limit was 800 knots, but he said, if you're getting out, Pete, you're being chased, there is no limit. Exactly. And some of them went over 800, no trouble at all. Wow. Great, great machine. Just a huge engine. Yeah. They they came out to Ahakia in 1964, though, of course. Mm. And I, I mean, they came from Kadena as well. Okay. Yeah. 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 Because the guy that did the the colonel who was in charge did the sort of the sonic, supersonic run over a hack here. He wrote himself off not long after that. Oh, all right, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, uh, similar, George, similar. Uh, uh, actually, there's a guy who's talking at about 14 squadron on one exercise. On oh, John Scrimshaw in his book, that was that one where the thing pitched up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it was going, they were going for it. Down at Ahaki that day, they, they did a refuel, a refuel, and three of them went over, and one of them got into a pilot juice off. And he went, and I thought, oh, crikey, we're going to see the same thing, but he, he managed to recover it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, you certainly had an amazing um, Air Force career and, and an airline career by the sound of it. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a great career to look back on. Oh, yeah, I've got a lot to be thankful for. And, and, Met some great people too in, in the industry. There's no doubt about yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's no no people like air, uh, aircraft people, aviation. No, people. no. It's in their blood, isn't it? Good. <laughs> You've only got to watch these volunteers. You watch what some of the blokes have produced um, in the aircraft restoration, and the volunteers that work in the hangars and so on. It, uh, yeah, they they can't keep away from it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I was also thinking. You know, the, the main purpose for this when we initially set this up was just to record that whole evaluation period and, and selection of the Stripe Master. And I was thinking, uh, when you look at the jets, we probably never had an evaluation for the vampire because we would have just mm. had, there's the vampire, there's nothing else. Yeah. Um, it's British, you have to buy it sort of thing. Oh, yeah. And I guess with the Canberra too, that was sort of, we leased some first and and then yeah. they would have gone, well, we'll buy yeah. those. I think that was a strategic decision. And at the time, I said, why didn't we get a, you know, a whole bunch of hunters? Because I was mad keen to get on. To get I, did, yeah. did, I did quite a bit of flying with 20 Squadron on the Hunter. I spent a couple of weeks with them. Right. Really enjoyable. Did some rocketing and what have you. Oh, wow. And I loved, it's a lovely aeroplane to fly. But, but uh, looking back, I can see that the New Zealand government, we belonged to CETO in those days. Yeah. And forward defence um, was a, the big thing. You know, we, we weren't going to fight here. We were going to do it somewhere else. Yeah. So we had to have an aeroplane that could deploy with not, from a, way down here with not a lot of support, yeah. um, some credibility, of course. And, the, and Canberra was one of few available. You, you couldn't equip yourself with an aeroplane down here that didn't need huge support that we didn't have that could deploy anywhere in our region and, and play, play your role. Or take your part in, in our treaty organisations at the time. So, I, I, much as I personally thought, oh damn it, <laughs> yeah, um, it I, I think probably was right. Yeah, and also the interoperability too, because the ARF were using them, yep. the RAAF were using them, yep. Yep. you know, a lot of other 
nations, and they're still they're still in service now in yeah. some of the some of the uh, yeah, air forces. Yeah. Oh, Even yeah. the I think the uh, NATO uh, NASA still uses them. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah for high altitude work. Yeah, well, a tremendous capability for its time. You know, as I said, as a nineteen-year-old, we flying around at up to forty-eight thousand feet, and we'd punch off to Fiji on our own, just the two of you, the a screwdriver and some starter cartridges and a voucher to buy some fuel. <laughs> so I think my first ever trip out of New Zealand at that age was to go over to Australia and back on my own to Canberra with, uh, with my navigator. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now my navigator at those eras, I was very lucky. I don't know if you know much about Brick Lucas. He's, no. No, he... he um, he was a nav, and he then became a pilot. But um, he uh, he was actually killed at Erebus. And, and he um, picked somebody in the seventy-five squadron association has been looking into his background lately. He became a pilot. He was our best man at our wedding. He became a lifelong friend. Had he had he lasted. He uh, I also did a lot of his flying instruction on the Vampire before he went on, and he was very highly regarded because he was such a professional. And he was called in that day at a reserve to go on TE901, was it, down yeah, there? And he wasn't particularly happy, but he, he, he was in the passenger cabin rather than on the flight deck with all the non-aviation, you know, the, the, the scenic side. And, and Ron Chivendale, I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that he actually was commented either verbally or otherwise that had he been on the flight deck, the accident may not have happened yeah. because he was such a professional. Right. And there were indications there that, A, they shouldn't have been where they were and that they weren't where they thought they were. Yeah. And he, so he was that highly regarded. Wow, that's... So I was lucky, actually, to have him as nav for all that time, right from the start, start through, and, and as a friend in later life. Yeah. 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 That's sad. Mm. Um, well, I mean... Thank you very much. This has been, no, no. This has been fantastic, Mary. No, no. I appreciate it. I don't know what you're going to take out of it. <laughs> Probably all of it. That's no, all good no. Stuff. no. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you very much. I appreciate okay, it. Okay, no problem, Dave. A pleasure, absolute pleasure. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs>